0: Isaiah 45, and I'll only read verse 18, actually. You'd think that since I cut the reading in half, the sermon would be half as long, but you'd be wrong. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other." Father, we pray, please uh, open our ears, have us to remain focused on your word, and we pray, Lord, please uh, have this word to come forth clearly, plainly, such that we and any who listen will understand. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So one verse. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. So we'll walk through this slowly. First, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens. Don't think of create in the typical sense that you might think of when you read those words. Think of it in the creative sense. So in other words, imagine an artist, an artist who's standing before a blank canvas, or a sculptor who's standing before a big block of stone, and they are going to now create something. Think of the creativity that goes into that, for thus says the Lord, who created the heavens. Now imagine they're involved in that work, so you've got this painter, this sculptor, they're involved in this, they're halfway through it, they're totally oblivious to the world around them, they are so focused on what it is that they're creating they don't eat, they don't sleep, they're not giving to distractions, they're just working away, making what it is that they have an image of in their mind. So an artist lives in reality, and what they're doing is they're bringing something else that they have in their head into that reality. They're creating it, they're bringing it into existence. They're bringing this piece of work into the existence and have it share it with them. That's what God did when He created the heavens and the earth. He is the artist, He is the one that imagined all of this. And in His mind, He had it fully formed, and then He took those days to create it all. We entered into His reality. God's reality is ultimate. Ours is dependent on his. So God is not like an artist. Artists are like God. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it. Formed the earth and made it. I asked Tabitha on the way back from Tennessee yesterday, if there was a different term for these two things, and let me describe. If I'm a sculptor, and I have this big block of rock, and I have an image in my mind of what I want to see, and I chisel it all away, and over months I create this big majestic statue, this sculpture, I'm a sculptor. But if I sit down and pull a bunch of clay together, and I make this humongous statue, or bronze, or steel, or whatever I make the sculpture out of, I'm a sculpture. They seem so fundamentally different to me, but they're both sculptors. And so I had to look it up, of course, and Wikipedia gave me the answer. They're both sculptors, it's true, but the former, the first I described, the carving it out of a block of stone where you're removing material... They're more carvers, they chisel away stuff that they don't want in their work. So they see what it is they want in that and then they get to it. The other who makes things into things, they're called modelers. They pull from materials and put something together and they form a model and that's their work of art. So you get to it by two very different paths. The one is by chiseling away stuff And the other is by adding stuff, orienting it, proportioning it together. So, see, God is, I would say, probably more like the modeler, where he begins with this stuff and makes stuff. But we know the stuff that he even sculpted was stuff that he made. So he goes beyond modelers using existing stuff. He made it all up. He created all the stuff he wanted to make stuff from see who formed the earth and made it two different words were used formed and made the way i view it is the forming is referring to the process by which something came out of the end so there's this process forming 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 made it's done now and so humans Artists, inventors, uh, engineers, uh, builders, workers, all of us created in God's image do that same thing. We have these processes by which we make things. And here it is. This is something that I've created. We're made in God's image to do that. We are workers. Now, God didn't just create things, however. He created so many complex processes that govern all those things, and we're going to get into some details later, but suffice it for now to say that the processes are far more difficult to craft than the things themselves, and the things themselves are pretty difficult, but that's what God did. He created these things. He created these processes by which to govern these things, and we know that he didn't then just go away like the Uh, story of the clockmaker, the watchmaker world, where God has created stuff and then just left, gone to a far country. No, Jesus sustains His creation. He created the things, He created the processes, they all work together, but because ours is a dependent reality, God must remain in this reality because He's the ultimate reality. If He left, we'd zap. We no longer exist. So Jesus has to sustain that. His presence, his active uh, support of this is needed. So now, a designer, as I said, has an end in mind. When that painter is standing before the canvas, that is, to me, the scariest part. How do they see what it is they want? How do they properly uh, parcel it all out? And I am gifted to have a painter in my house, and I am so impressed when I see what has been produced by this young woman. So I probably didn't have a whole lot of respect for artists long ago. I kind of deprecated art in many ways. It just didn't seem like a valuable use of time or or talents. But then I've come to meet artists and I just see how passionate they are at this and what incredible things that they can create. And then you see how God has done the same thing. So these artists are merely following in God's footsteps. And it gave me so much greater appreciation for art and artists. God declared his creation to be very good at the end. So he began with what he wanted. He had an image in his mind of what he wanted to create, what he wanted to form and make. And when he was done, he said he declared it very good. It, It met his expectations. I want to now digress a little bit and differentiate between the two main words we've introduced. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it. So, Isaiah, God through Isaiah, has introduced these terms, heavens and earth. Let me introduce a few texts and I'll flip through them pretty quickly. Genesis 126. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God made man, and He made man for a purpose, that He was going to be the overseer of this world and all the creatures on it that He's created. But let's flip to the next one. In Jeremiah 27, 5, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. So though God made it, and though God has made man to rule over it, he gives it to whomsoever he wishes of those men that he's created. Next, Psalm 89:11. The heavens are yours the earth also is yours the world and all its fullness you have founded them so god retains exclusive rights to ownership of said property that he's created our god believes in copyright law i believe he's declared that he created it i own it now next we have psalm 115 verse 16 the heaven even the heavens are the lord's but the earth He has given to the children of men. So God is differentiating between what He has given man responsibility over and what He has retained responsibility over. And He's given man responsibility in many ways for the earth. And yet He retained ownership and management to all of the rest of it, all of the rest of the universe. And even in our own solar system, we have the earth, But then we have these other planets, we have the sun, we have our moon. But it appears from what I've just read that God has retained exclusive rights of ownership of those other celestial bodies, all of them. Unless you could point to a verse where the moon was given to us too, but I I couldn't find it. Psalm 147, the next one. Psalm 147, verse 4. He counts the number of the stars, he calls them all by name. So God created all the stars, he knows the exact count of all the stars, and he has named all of the stars. How many stars do you think there are? Some of you are shaking your head because you know that it's a crazy, crazy large number. There are an estimated 10 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. And there are aspects of the universe that, to to this point, have not been observed by man. On average, there are an estimated 100 million stars per the 10 trillion galaxies. That means that the number of stars, and, and please don't check my math because it's probably wrong, but the number of stars is 1 to the 24th power. And the very man that came up with that estimate said it's probably a vast underestimate. The real number is probably much bigger than that. Now, million, we know, is a one with six zeros after it. One and then six zeros, million. Billion, add three more zeros. Trillion, add three more zeros. Quadrillion, add three more zeros. Quintillion, add three more zeros. Sextillion, add three more zeros. Septillion, 24 zeros. That's how many stars we're talking about. It's called a septillion. Now, I don't know about you, but I thought pretty much that all numbers past trillion were called zillion. (laughs) But there is no number called a zillion. And so that's a made up number that doesn't exist in the list of numbers. And also there's this number Googleplex, which I'm sure you nerds out there know. That's supposedly the biggest, biggest number ever on earth. And then of course it's Googleplex plus one, right? That's what anybody's gonna say. see John is thinking it, he knows. (laughs) So, see, there are trillions times trillions of stars in existence in this universe. And God hasn't given us a one of them. Not one. Even our own star, he doesn't trust us with. Look what we've done to the earth. I wouldn't trust us with with it, right? Let me read Job 38. Job 38, verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, This far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and the earth, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it. Now, think of the earth. We're back to the earth only. Think of the earth being established. What does it mean to establish something? You know, it instantly reminds me of all of these many signs that you see around. You see signs all over the place. Established, and then they'll have a year. Established. 2017 established 1910 I remember we were watching a show a few weeks ago and about these people from London that want to move out to the country and they were uh, praising the uh, the features of this one community and there was a candy store in that town that had been in existence for like 250 years established you know like 1736 or something I forget what it was but I mean That business has lasted a long time, and it's always been a candy store. So candy is a good business to get into, apparently, at least in London, or in this little town on the outskirts of London. So we establish these businesses, we establish these towns, and then we proclaim established So, see, we have a date. You know, Bishop Usher gave us an established date for the earth that I think is far closer than most anything any of these scientists would give us. Established circa 4004 B.C. That's what I would posit is a much, much closer date. Now, we don't know. God wasn't precise in this, but that's what is much closer than anything else that we might see. Things are established... And they're celebrated, and a sign is put up, but when they are disestablished, you tend to not have a sign put up. You tend to not go by and strike out that and put that it died this day. Now, although when people expire, historians always say, what are his dates? In music, too, don't you ask, what are their dates? Date of birth, date of death. It seems like that's all the professors want you to memorize or whatever. When, did they, when were they born? When did they die? You're fitting them in this window of time throughout, throughout life. But see, the established, when you establish something, you don't want it to die. You're not planning for it to die. You want it to live forever. And so that's what our expectation is. We expect to see it last. Uh, the other day, we had a man join us for Presbytery. He is a, a man in a church down in Ozark, Arkansas. And he told us the sad tale of the decline of his church in recent decades. And he is soliciting to become a candidate church in the CPC. This is a PCUSA church now. They were founded in 1851. They probably have it right there in their front yard, established 1851. There are five members in that church now. And a lot of the reason they've lost people over the last 20 or 30 years is that people have said, The PCUSA is too liberal. I'm not going to come to your church anymore. So this man, hopefully with the help of these other four members, are attempting to salvage this church and have there not be a date of death written on that sign out front, not turn that poor church into a thrift store or something like that soon. We will try to help him to that end. We have agreed to sponsor his candidacy in the CPC. And we have to figure out what exactly that entails. You know, it's kind of like, you know, we were arguing about that, about the whole Obamacare thing, about, oh, you have to sign it to figure out what's in it. Uh, But in a part, that's kind of what we are doing when we're doing this. We're taking on yet another tiny church that at this point can barely be self-sustaining like others. But it was an impassioned plea from a man who's, come to his senses, and wants to help save this church and pull it into the future for God's glory. How could we say no? I mean, it was difficult. It was difficult, but in the end, uh, almost nearly unanimous, yes, let's support this fellow. And see, that's because disestablishment is sad. It's fearful. It scares us when we see the end of something coming. What's really, really, I think, ironic about this is that we live in the midst of a very pagan time where the West that had known the Lord for centuries has now discarded it, but what are they consumed by? Saving the earth. Now, there are real concerns about the earth. You know, when I was young, Pollution, deforestation, acid rain, the threat of nuclear waste and and, uh, animal and plant extinction. And all of these things are real. They are real potential threats to our world. And that has now blossomed into the uh, rabid concern about global warming and climate change and the eco-terrorists that are frankly out there killing people because those people are a plague on this globe crazy, crazy. People who don't have a purpose for existing, who say that it's all random chance, are on the front lines of trying to protect this earth for their posterity. It's really nonsensical when you think about it. But it just proves to you that people need something to live for. They need something to fight for. And it's good that God gives them something to fight for, And God will use them in his army, in his uh, list of workers. These people will accomplish much. Some of it, sure, it's misguided, it's misdirected, it's maybe even out and out wrong. But some of what we do is misguided and, and wrong too. And so God knows, though, what he can salvage from these people that are totally misguided and don't even know him, don't want to serve him, yet they are all people serve God. So see, founders typically die though, right? Founder of a city, founder of a business, and then comes the challenge of succession. Who's going to take over this town? Who's going to take over this business? Is it going to keep going or is it going to die? And that's always difficult. So where there is no founder now, the vision can perish. So this is why the many, many unbelievers that we're in the midst of regard the world as in peril because they don't recognize the founder. They don't recognize the present overseer of the earth that is there. And God has given us responsibility for the earth, and we've messed it up royally, so they perceive that there is nobody running it. So they're ready and welcome to invite this elite that know much more than them to run it for us. We live at a time such as that, where the vast majority of people are willing to hand over their liberties to an elite because only that elite can have the power to truly know what's best for Mother Earth. Now, we know that's not the case. We know God runs the earth, even though He'd given it to us and we messed it up. He continues to oversee and bring different overseers and managers in to manage it to meet his expectations. Gary North asks a great question when he talks about covenants, and he brings up those five principles. The question he asks is, who's in charge here? That's the question that we ask. Who's in charge on the earth? The non-Christians say no one is, so they seek that elite to rule. And their belief is somewhat justified in the sense that they see how messed up it is, all this evil that appears to be dominating. Why is the world so messed up? And then we have to take them to Adam and Eve in the fall, but they don't believe that. They think that's too simple, too basic. So the answer, though, is that God's original caretakers, Adam and Eve, failed to do their job. And ever since then, we've been in kind of this messed up state man was deceived, acted irresponsibly, allowed Satan to uh, have entrance, and put that that, uh, established clause in jeopardy of ending, of having this end. But again, God has said this, The earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. So see, God still owns it, though. So we must not lose hope. We must not lose faith. We know God will not abandon us. Jesus tells the story of leasing out the vineyard, and by this, he proves this. He speaks of God having loaned out the vineyard, and yet they abused the privilege, and now he's taking it away. That's what he did with the Jews. He took it away from them, and God continues to take away his church, his property, his nations from those that rule without acknowledging him. God is a sole proprietor. We do not run the earth with him. He runs it alone. But he does hire and fire lots and lots of managers through time, ourselves among them, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain. The earth was not created in vain. God had a purpose in mind when creating the earth. This is a very functional piece of art that we're talking about here. The earth will fulfill every purpose to which God has intended it. The rebellious reject this. They insist that there is purposelessness and vanity that is central to our existence. And of course, that, isn't, that doesn't tend to motivate people. And so then they have these lesser causes that they establish, such as saving the earth. In the book that I referenced actually a couple weeks ago, the John Maxwell book, Talent Is Never Enough, I may have referenced it last time, but if people lack a plan for themselves, they will become a part of other person's, another person's plan. He just said, that's a truism. In business, that's what happens. If you don't have a plan for yourself, someone else will make you a part of their plan. And we are all, believer and unbeliever alike, a part of God's plan. We as believers know this, but it is difficult at times to learn exactly what we're to do. Now we know this tells us what to do, what not to do, but we have so much liberty. Even given the guideline of Scripture, we have so much liberty to make choices. And so that's why we go to God, asking for wisdom. What do I do, God? How do I fulfill this that you're calling me to do? How do I know what you're calling me to do? And so these are difficult questions. These are difficult questions for us as believers that have this much wisdom and the blessing of the Holy Spirit to guide us. Imagine how hard it is for unbelievers without that with nothing to guide them other than their own wits, their own experiences. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. God's purpose for the earth was habitation. This earth was created to house life, and it does it wonderfully even with us having messed it up it does it wonderfully psalm 104 i remember uh, as a young christian uh, having purchased an amy grant album album where she sings psalm 104 it's just a beautiful song but it goes through creation it goes through the beauty of this world and i'm not i don't have time to read it right now but life is everywhere on this earth everywhere life exists at the opening of these thermal vents that come up from the molten core at the bottom of the oceans. Life exists at the tippy top of the mountains in little microscopic organisms. Life exists in Antarctica, of all places, where it's just cold all the time. So see, life is everywhere. It's so pervasive here on this earth. So what that tells us then, as mere humans, life is so common. It's so common. There's nothing special about life. Life is everywhere. All we have to do is be patient and look for it. So we need to dig deeper into this. How did God make this earth to be a habitation? In 1966, you're probably familiar with this, from April of 1966, there was a cover of Time magazine, all black with the red letters, Is God Dead? It was a shocking, and meant to be, a shocking cover. Time had never run a magazine without a photograph, without some image, some picture, to go along with the words. And isn't it cool that they didn't? Because God should not be represented by an image, right? And so they were honoring God even by by breaking their own standard and always having a picture associated with it. But so they asked, is God dead? It was really all about religion, And uh, it wasn't so much, but one of the reasons, one of the murderers of God, so to speak, was, or suspected murderers, was science. Science was thought to have rendered God an obsolete concept in our world. Science was thought to have killed the need of God. Now, a few years later, SETI was formed. They uh, had this search for extraterrestrial intelligence 1971, there was a paper written. They wanted to fund a ten billion dollar project to look for life out in the universe. That one was shot down. But I think some of you know that I worked for a brief time on the SETI program. And so it kept going and people kept funding it, defunding it, funding it, defunding it. It was it was very controversial until it was finally zapped in like 1994. But anyway, Carl Sagan, who was a prime driver of the creation of SETI, had estimated that of the one to the 24th planets, which is actually what we now see as the equivalent of the number of galaxies, one to the 24th of planets, that of those, one to the 21st planets could support life. Now, by my math, you guys who are mathematicians tell me, is that one in a thousand? Is it one in a thousand? It's one to the twenty-first versus one to the twenty-fourth. So it's one in a thousand. Yep, I got my mathematicians nodding to me. So one in a thousand of the planets that were thought to exist were were by Sagan uh, said to contain life or the potential for life. There were only two rules that guided this at that time. First, it was the size of the star. The star had to be of a certain size, and the star and the planet had to be a certain distance from the star. Both of these were the only requirements. But let me add more requirements right now. The number of requirements for habitable planets is well over 200. I'm going to give you eight. The third point is that it had to be the planet, The uh, the star had to be in a hospitable galaxy. There are some galaxies that are just in chaos. They're conflicting with one another. The planets would not have a chance of surviving if life got started. According to the evolutionary concept of long time needed so. Our galaxy does happen to be in a very, very safe place of the universe. We don't have a lot of chaos around us. We don't have other galaxies that are colliding with ours. Way, yay us, right? So the fourth point, we have to have a stable sun. The sun can't be that variable, because it's not like your planet can move away when it gets too hot. Woo, let's back up from the fire pit, right? No, that can't happen. So your, your planet is going to orbit at a certain distance, and so that can't just double in size suddenly because of this big explosion in it. So, minimum of solar flares. Even we, with a very stable sun, hear talk of the solar flares, and oh, if a solar flare ever does this, we're all toast. Right? And it would be, it's true. If if our sun ever did what it is that the scientists fear, we would all be toast. But we know God will not do that, unless he wants to, of course. So, number five, molten magnetic core. Now, this is very interesting, and I can't go into the science because I don't know it. Uh, I read it, but I don't know it. So, there is this magnetic core, and there's the position of the moon, and the position of the sun, and this magnetic balancing and spinning it's just amazing, and, and just pretend I told you all this stuff that wowed you. So, molten magnetic core. Sixth, large gas giants close by. Jupiter and Saturn protect us from probably a thousand meteors for every one that gets past them. These big guys are out there to protect the Earth. So, praise Jupiter and Saturn, not the people from the Greek mythology, the ones that God put out in space okay our earth required a circular orbit rather than an elliptical orbit why again because of the distance from the sun if our earth were moving vastly farther from the sun it would get colder and colder and colder and then come back and get hotter and hotter and hotter it would create this this uh, untenable uh basis for life and so we're looking for uh Relatively circular orbits. We're looking for a large moon relatively close to the planet because it then can helps control the seasons again with that magnetic uh, Bias and the proximity of the moon in proximity of the Sun and they all maintain in this like hypostasis So this large moon relatively close is required Rapid rotation of the earth every 24 hours. It goes around Does anybody know how often the moon spins on its axis very good, very good. I think it's, I don't know exactly what it is, but that's about roughly, because we know the new moon and all that. But see, that's the time it revolves around the sun. You know what's funny? The moon spins at the exact rate that it revolves around the earth. That's why this, we always see the same picture when we look at the moon, because it spins at the very same rate that it goes around us. It's just amazing. I, I have to look into that. I don't know if, any, if anybody of if you know why that is. If it's not just coincidence, please come tell me. So the 10th one, the tilted axis, the fact that we're 23 degrees tilted, allows us then to have the seasons that we do in conjunction with the moon and uh, this tilting of the axis. If it were zero, there would be no life on earth because all the ice would accumulate at the caps, desert would form in the middle. If it were at 90 degrees, same thing, just death, death, death. And actually, I didn't cover all the bad things. What would happen if we didn't have those? Um, Hospitable galaxies, safe from radiation, safe from collisions. Stable sun, uh, minimum solar flares. Large gas strands protect from meteors. Circular orbit, not too hot, not too cold. Um, The large moon controls the tides. If the moon were even 40,000 miles closer to us, anybody know how far away the moon is from us? Nope, my go-to guys are all shaking their heads. Nope, okay. However far it is, I think it's 186,000 miles, or is that the speed of light? That's probably the speed of light, isn't it? 8, there we go. There we go. I knew it had an 80,000 there. So it's not far away. The earth, how far, how, what's the diameter of the earth? You know, That's where you draw a line across it. What's the diameter of the earth? About 8,000 miles. So really, the earth is 8,000 miles across. The moon is fairly close at 286,000 miles or whatever that is. So, I mean, it's not too far away. It's very close and it's very big. It's like a quarter the size of the Earth. I mean, the moon is huge. Now, in volume, it's much smaller, but in size, but anyway, again, I could be wrong. I'm just up here making stuff up. (laughs) Now, the probability of finding another habitable planet was, according to Carl Sagan, in the late 60s, early 70s, one in a thousand chance. They're all over. They're all over. But as these requirements, 200-plus requirements, kept being added, the chance kept going smaller, 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 until it entered into the realm of impossibility. Because there, you do get to small enough numbers where mathematicians acknowledge it's not possible. But because we exist, we know it is a possibility. That's how evolutionists think. It's faith based. We exist, therefore evolution is true because God couldn't possibly have created us. Now, let me give you some amazing facts about the Earth, the sun and the moon. The Earth is the only planet in our solar system covered with water and life. There are 500,000 islands on the Earth. Again, orbital elliptic, uh, if the orbit were elliptical, we'd all die. We go around uh, the sun Every 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, 45.51 seconds. And it's accurate to 1/1000th one of a second. If the average temperature of the earth went up 2 degrees, it would all fry. If it went down 2 degrees, it would all freeze. So see again, the people that are fearful for our planet are fearful for a reason. I mean, God has to keep us in these bounds in order for uh, the earth to sustain life. If the Earth's 24-hour rotation were much slower. Again, we'd both roast and freeze. Because you know how you watch the temperature, the hourly temperature, how it gets colder and colder in the night, and then it gets warmer and warmer in the day? Just imagine if night was like two weeks long. Colder, 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 colder. Negative 50, negative 80, negative 120. I mean, it would get that cold. Meanwhile, our friends on the other side of the planet 90, 100, 120, 140, 180, you know, would all be dead. That's what happens. That's why just the 24-hour spin of the earth preserves life as we know it. There's no way if, if we were spinning seven times slower that we'd have any life on this earth. Okay, I can't cover everything I have. Sun. The sun, we receive on the earth about one billionth of the rays, the energy produced by our sun. But, That one billionth of the sun's power that we receive is the equivalent of 130 trillion horsepower. Again, the moon, if it were closer, uh, tides, our our whole planet would be scrubbed flat like a ball because the tides would be enormous, they'd wash up on the land, all the mountains would dissipate. Water and air are required for life. I don't know if you know that. I knew that, but you might not have. 70% of the Earth's surface is covered with water. Water has several interesting attributes. Water absorbs heat very, very well. And so the Earth is sending this, like, trillion uh, horsepower of energy at us. And it's getting absorbed by the oceans. And yet the oceans aren't heating up and bubbling over and killing all life in them. They just kick up a, a degree. But then, as they move around and the ocean's now away from the sun, they release that heat that they'd accumulated. So the water on the earth forms this tremendous means of regulating the temperature of the earth. Water as a solid, we know, as everything gets colder, it tends to contract, smaller, smaller, just like us. Think of you shivering. Uh, I want to be as small as possible, minimize my surface area. And so everything except water, as it starts approaching freezing, s- starts getting bigger. It increases in size to where when it's frozen, it's slightly bigger than it was when it was in liquid form. Thus, it's lighter because it's filling a bigger area with the same matter, so now it floats on top. And it doesn't kill everything because, see, if it frozen sank, it would kill everything. All the life in all the waters would all be dead. So, see, isn't it wonderful that Warm water sinks because it helps keep all this. As a kid, I used to be really puzzled over that. How do things live in there? I mean, there's just these little streams. Like down at the Presbyterian, all the kids were playing with the crawfish in the creeks. Even those little things are protected by this feature of water. So now, air. Hot water sinks, thankfully, preserves life. Hot air rises, Thankfully preserves life. Because if the air were to heat up on the surface of the earth and all the hot air sank to the surface of the earth, again, it would just get incredibly hot and roast us all to death. And those poor birds, you'd think like Noah's raven that is up there flying around, he's up there in frigid temperatures. He's going to die too. He'd have to like remain in this little tiny narrow band between what's going to cook us and what's going to freeze us to death. So with all that being said, there's more I could say, but our entire solar system was created to support life on Earth, on Earth. We've got Jupiter and Saturn out there. We've got the circular orbit of the Earth. These planets, we don't, I, I, I would say that we probably don't even know how some of these other planets are benefiting the Earth. And I, if I could study it, but boy, you've got to be a brainiac to study some of that stuff. But see, man is not a product of random chance, and this Earth is not inhabitable by chance. It's by design. God designed this earth for our use, for us. Now, as a young person, I'm going to totally shift gears. As a young person, um, I don't know if everybody questions the meaning of life. I know I did. Many of us that grow up in the church are equipped with the answer. You know the meaning of life. You still kind of have to apply it to yourself. You have to figure it out. But if you didn't grow up in the church, you might then have wrestled with that question. Why do I exist? What am I here for? Why is there uh, death? So I was probably uh, 12 or 13 when I started doing that. My grandma died. Now, what I learned from her death was that death is serious, and it has repercussions in earth. Because we went down and attended her funeral and then came back home, and I don't remember ever going back down again. My dad was upset by various things that had occurred after his mother died. And he didn't like how his sisters were uh, uh, interacting with one another over some of the stuff that was at Grandma's house. And so I don't remember ever going back down again. So you see that death can, instead of drawing people together, it can drive them apart. Two years later, my younger sister Bridget died of cancer. She'd had cancer from birth. She'd had 11 major operations, or 13 major operations in 11 years, radiation therapy, chemotherapy, all that stuff, and then finally she passed away. And from that, I learned, death comes to the young. Death doesn't just come to the old. 1981, six years later, I'm saved. I become a Christian. And I learned then that God exists and that life has meaning. Three years later, One of my older brothers, Mike, the one nearest in age to me, died. He died in a motorcycle accident. And I learned from that that death comes to the reckless. He had left a bar with a girl on the back. They got two miles away from the bar and crashed, hit a guardrail. They both died. Sixteen years later, my father died. And I learned then that death leaves us often with regrets because I had encouraged him I had encouraged him to study, to read, uh, to uh, come to the knowledge of the Lord, and uh, he read, at my recommendation, he read Ecclesiastes, and I learned about a month or two later in conversation with my mom that all she said was, your dad read that book that you wanted him to read, and he couldn't understand it, and yet I never followed up with him. I mean, that was a perfect opportunity for me to follow up with him, to give him the rationale as to what Ecclesiastes was, because it is a difficult book to understand. But so that left me with regrets. I hadn't followed up, and then it was too late. A few years later, my mother died, and that's when I learned that death comes to the sad. My, uh, my parents had been together since uh, they were both 13, and so they'd gone through high school together and, and uh, just been through a lot together. And it didn't appear that uh, my mom had uh, much reason or interest in living after that. So then... We fast-forward to uh, three years ago, and my sister passes away. This is my older sister, Brenda. And then I realized that death comes to the weary. She just appeared to be weary of living. Uh, She had led what, you know, for many who don't know God, can be a hard life. And, you know, it's hard enough for us that know God. Um, But it can be very hard for people that don't know the Lord. And so I really just sensed that she was weary of life. And I think perhaps both she and my mother had been aware that they'd contracted cancer, but they delayed uh, Having it discovered because they just didn't really want to fight it. They didn't care about that and then just uh, For some of you don't know but you know, I've mentioned that my brother uh, Had been found last Saturday uh, He had stopped breathing, but uh, he's passed uh, Tuesday he passed and so then I learned that death comes unexpectedly. You know, both my brothers learned that. My brother Mike with the motorcycle accident. My brother John, he had just moved back up from Florida after having been in jail down there. Um, he was hopeful for the future. He had just started, started a job that his son had helped line up for him. And we don't know what happened. They just found him not breathing. And uh, so I uh, am the only one left of a family of seven. It's kind of surprising at my age, and I'm the only Christian uh, in my immediate family. None of my siblings or my parents ever uh, accepted the Lord. So the reason I bring all this up, though, and I prefaced it with what is the meaning of life, because, see, I described the purpose of the earth. There is a purpose for this earth, and thus there is a purpose for all life on the earth. God has preserved us. He's built this earth to be inhabited. And yet, by inference then, you deduce the fact that there is purpose for everything, everyone. And so you must learn your purpose if you don't know it. And my purpose, obviously, now that it's passed, was not to be successful at leading my parents or my uh, two brothers or two sisters to the Lord. Um, And yet I do have a lot of nephews, nieces, other family members, and so I'm taking that more seriously now. And uh, yet I've never been good at this. I want to get better. So see, the uh, message today is entitled A World of Purpose, and yet that's theoretical. That's out there. You have to make it your own. You have to realize this applies to me. God created trillions times trillions of stars. They have a purpose that God hasn't revealed to us yet. We see them twinkle at night, at least up to 2 or 3,000 of them. You know, just this dust speck of the vast number. And so God created every person for a reason, and even the unsaved had a purpose. I know my family members had purposes. They've fulfilled those purposes. They're over now. We know our purpose as believers is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Unbelievers see no ultimate purpose or meaning in life, and all that they set their minds and hearts on are temporary by by design, It's just logically impossible for them to have ultimate meaning if they don't believe in a God and a purpose to why this earth exists. We are all a part of God's plan. The evil and the good in this world are all part of God's plan. The saved and the unsaved are all part of God's plan. Now, we know our sins separate us from the powerful God that created all these galaxies that created this earth to be inhabited, Our sins separate us from that God. Yet, we are called, commanded to reconcile with that God. And there was a time when that was exceedingly difficult. Before Christ came, that was exceedingly difficult. You essentially had to move to Israel. You had to recognize that Judaism and Jehovah were the only way to get to God. But God appointed a Savior, To pay the penalty for those sins that separated us to broaden the scope of his salvation to all the earth but we must seek him we must not deny the reality that we have a clock that ticks within us that will end our lives one day so we know the Lord has brought good news and we want to share that good news with everyone and hold them accountable for this I did not persist with my family to the point of annoyance I'm just not like that but perhaps I should have perhaps I should have persisted to the point of annoyance where anytime they saw me they were like oh no here comes rod let's pray father we thank you for the purpose of this world we thank you and pray that you would grant us clarity of purpose in our own lives that we would live for you. We thank you, Lord. You have given us much to enjoy, uh, much to enjoy. We pray that we would not enjoy the gift more than the giver, and that we would take seriously our role in carrying out a purpose on earth. Thank you, Father, for your creation. Uh, Thank you for this world. Thank you for the precious gift of life that while on this earth appears so common, in this universe is quite unique. We thank you, Lord. Please enter into our hearts, and for any present that don't know you, I pray, Father, humble them, have them to seek you while you can be found. In Christ's name we pray, amen.